All right, well, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. So if you can uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 17 and uh, looking at the four verses following that. And we'll take a quick glance at the remainder of the verses in Matthew chapter 5. But pray with me, would you? Lord, we thank you for giving us again, an opportunity to come as a group. It's so much funner when we come together and we worship you together and we, and we sit down and we all open our Bibles and we wait to see what you would teach us from your word. We thank you for the encouragement of this fellowship that we get to do that. And Lord, we've come for the main reason to worship you and to worship you by uh, listening and, and studying your word. And we ask God that you would teach us something today. If nothing else, that you would remind us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted. And we look to you, God, and we just pray that you'd speak in the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this message is The Fulfillment of His Word. The Fulfillment of His Word. And really, what is the fulfillment of his word. And in this case, we're going to be looking at who is the fulfillment of his word. In the time of Jesus, when he walked on the earth, the religious leaders of that day, they were very legalistic, extremely legalistic, a list of rules that you had to follow. Unfortunately, they were so wrong in many of their lists and not only that, they themselves were hypocrites. And so what happened oftentimes is Jesus corrected them. He had to correct them for the teaching of his father's word, for crying out loud, right? And so he did. And so they would accuse him of going against the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus kept telling them, look, I'm not going against the Old Testament scriptures. It's just that you've got it all wrong. I found a few clippings of mistakes that were made, not so much mistakes, but just the way it was worded in church announcements. And just a few. There were several. I just picked a couple. One announcement said, don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> Another announcement said, ladies, don't forget the garage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things worth keeping around the house or not worth keeping around the house. And then it said, don't forget your husband's. My favorite, at the evening service tonight, their sermon topic will be, quote, unquote, what is hell? Come early to listen to our choir practice. <laughs> oh, man, that hit home for me. Have you ever been lied to all the while knowing that you're being lied to? Have you ever been treated politely? while knowing at the same time that that very person doesn't really even like you and much less doesn't love you. It's cheap, isn't it? It's cheap when they treat you politely or, or when they lie to you and, and they're polite while they do it. It's cheap. Well, that is what religion is to God. It's cheap. Because 
you're going through a list of things that you need to do, but your heart is deceitfully wicked and evil and you're far away from him. And the things that you do in religion don't really uh, make your relationship with God any better. And to God, it is really cheap. And so we're going to see here in this text that Jesus, um, he holds the, God, the word of God at utmost importance. It's very important to him. And he's telling them, look, I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 5. And look at verse 17 with me. Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." We need to remember and know that God's word is infallible. It's perfect because it was written by the guidance or under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. There is not a single mistake in the Old Testament that God had to ever correct in the New Testament. God is the same. We're told in Hebrews that the word of God is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it goes on to say that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word can discern your motives, your intentions. It can do surgery on your heart. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth, they're going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. That word destroy, it means to loosen. And the idea is, imagine when you set up a tent and you tied all the ropes to all the corners. And when you're done camping and you want to tear down that tent, you go and you loosen all of those ropes and the tent therefore collapses. That's the way that word is used. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, to loosen it. I didn't come to dissolve those scriptures or undo them. And when he says the law and the prophets, the law would refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets would refer to basically the remainder of the Old Testament. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy them. It's interesting to note that about one-tenth of all of the words recorded in the New Testament, or I should say from the Gospels, Jesus' words, one-tenth of them, were quotes or they were allusions made to the Old Testament. 1,800 verses where Jesus speaks in the New Testament in those 1,800 verses, 180 of them, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. So he held them in uh, very high esteem. When we read and we think about how Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, I think it would help to think of it like this. He didn't come to destroy the authority of the Old Testament. He didn't come to destroy the principles of the Old Testament. And so his word is important. Why is his word important? Well, first of all, we have to consider who spoke it, who wrote it. 
You know God is eternal. Uh, Psalm 102 says, You are the same God, and your years will have no end. Psalm 119 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You know, God has been alive since forever ago, right? He didn't have a birthday. And then always in the future, he's never going to have a death. There's never going to be a memorial service for God. He's always been, he will always be. His word when he spoke it and Moses wrote it hasn't changed. His thoughts towards sin are still the same. As they were in the Old Testament, they're the same in the New Testament. The same things that displeased God in the Old Testament, guess what? They still displease him in the New Testament. Nothing has changed. And so it's interesting when you think about how God is eternal, he's unchanging. He is immutable. In other words, he doesn't change from one day to the next. And in the same way, his word doesn't change. And so when you think about that, his word is unchanging. His word is eternal. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. God is going to provide us a new heaven and a new earth. But his words are going to remain. They're always going to be there. And so all the same attitudes please God. All the same motives please God. And all the same sins still displease God. Jesus says every jot and every tittle. A jot would be like the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If you were to compare it to the English alphabet, a jot would be compared to the dot above the I. And it would look like an apostrophe. If you were to compare the tittle uh, to the English alphabet, it would be like the difference between a capital P and a capital R. That angled line that would distinguish the R from the P would be like the tittle. And Jesus says not one of those is going to pass away until all is fulfilled. And so you think about the Old Testament. We had the Mosaic Law. You think about Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You had the moral laws. Think of the Ten Commandments. You had the ceremonial laws, including things like the Sabbaths, uh, the feasts. And then you had sacrificial laws. And Jesus really fulfilled all of those. But we're going to talk more about that in just a few minutes. Jesus says in verse 19, it's to be taught and it's to be kept, right? So if you don't keep them and you teach men to do the same, Jesus says you're considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't accept the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. He would not accept them. Their righteousness was only external. That was their religion. It was only external. Uh, Their religion was a dead ritual, not a living relationship. Their religion was artificial. Their religion made them proud. It didn't make them humble. Their religion led people into bondage. It didn't lead them into liberty. And so Jesus goes on to say, but those who keep them and teach them, they are going to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus puts practice before preaching. And here's what I found interesting about this. This is Christ's test for greatness. If you don't keep the least of his commandments, you're considered least in the kingdom. If you do keep the least of his commandments, you're considered great 
in the kingdom of heaven. So question, do you keep all of God's commandments? Because a lot of us, I think, can come and say, look, I've never murdered anyone. I've got that under my belt. But that other commandment that says don't lie, well, just little ones. Little white lies. It's not as important as the murder. Now, that's bad. But lying, just a little white lie, it's okay. Much like we drive, right? We all break the speed limit by just a few miles an hour, right? When you're at an intersection and there's a stop sign and there's nobody there, there's a saying, no cop, no stop. Everybody knew it. You see, we all, we all know it. It's, it's, it's that way. But Jesus says, look, with my law, with my word, those who keep even the least are considered the greatest in my kingdom. And so remember that Timothy said, or it says in 2 Timothy, Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration. God didn't just write this to give us something to pass our time with. There's a saying when you go up to teach or preach, you either go up there because you have to say something, or you go up there because you have something to say. And Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit wrote every single word because he had something to say. Amen? He gave us instruction. And so Jesus says in the second part of verse 17, look at what he says. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And I want to spend the rest of our time here this morning talking about that. How Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I looked up the definition of the word fulfillment in the English language. And I, to me, it was exciting. The definition of fulfillment is the achievement of something desired, promised, or predicted. And I'm like, that's Jesus. He is the achievement of what was desired by the Old Testament, what was promised in the Old Testament, what was predicted in the Old Testament. Another meaning of that word fulfillment in the English language is the meeting of a requirement or condition. And I was like, that's Jesus too. He met all of the requirements of the Old Testament law. When nobody could keep them, he did it perfectly. He was the perfect fulfillment. And so you have to think about something. When you look at scripture, Jesus says, all scripture points to the Savior. All the scripture points to Jesus Christ. And so how did he fulfill God's word? He did so in his entire life. Okay, so Jesus did to the ceremonial law which pointed to him. That's what he did. He fulfilled it. He kept the moral law perfectly. He came to reveal the full depth of the meaning that was intended to be held by God from the Old Testament. And so he kept the Old Testament law perfectly when nobody else could. Hebrews 4.15 says that we have a high priest who was tempted in every point that we are tempted, but yet he remained without sin. Isn't that amazing? He was tempted in all the ways you and I are. And we might think, well, he didn't have the technology that we do today. He didn't have Las Vegas the way we do today. No offense to those of you who go to Las Vegas. He didn't have all the temptations, but you know, really, those are just current forms of the same temptations that were always in existence. And he was tempted, yet he remained without sin. Jesus himself told 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Nobody could accuse him of it. Well, they did so falsely, right? But nobody could convict him of sin. How else did he fulfill the Old Testament? Well, by prophecies. I have a a printout here of over 50 prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Prophecies concerning his birth, his forerunner, not his Toyota forerunner, John the Baptist, um, prophecies about his earthly ministry, prophecies about his, his crucifixion, prophecies about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all perfectly to the T, if you will, fulfilled by Jesus, which mathematically would be impossible for any one person to have fulfilled in detail the way Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. I have that list here, and there's, I'm sure, many resources you could go and check out. But it's interesting to look and consider how he fulfilled all of those prophecies. Another way he fulfilled the Old Testament law and the prophets was, again, by his death and resurrection. You remember when he died? It says that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And there was no longer a need for a priest. There was now direct access into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. It was an amazing thing. So we no longer need temples made with hands. We no longer need the religious rituals that go along with that. Which leads me to say, we don't need sacrifices anymore. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus fulfilled that law because he bore the curse of the law on the cross. He fulfilled the Old Testament types and ceremonies so that they no longer are required for the people of God. Think about this. He set aside the Old Covenant, but he brought in a new covenant. And so there are aspects of the Old Testament that no longer apply. You think about the atoning sacrifices that were needed. Jesus was that atoning sacrifice. Hebrews chapter Uh, Chapters 9 and 10, they talk about that a lot. But I'm going to read two verses from Hebrews chapter 10. It says this. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which never, can never take away sins. It goes on to say, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, Good for all time, that is once for all. And then he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. And so now there is no longer a list of requirements, especially according to the scribes and the Pharisees. And you know what's interesting about the scribes and the Pharisees? We think about them and we kind of ridicule them today. Because we've read the Gospels, we've seen how Jesus spoke to them, how he corrected them. He rebuked them harshly, but you know... If you and I lived in those days, they were actually held in very high esteem. Uh, The scribes were scholars who studied and interpreted the law endlessly. The word Pharisee literally meant separated one because they devoted their lives. They separated their lives to study his law. They were regarded as the outstanding examples of people who lived by the law of God. They studied the law over and over and over again to learn more and more. 
But what was interesting about them is they knew a lot. They had a lot of knowledge. And some of the things that they knew were things such as the number of letters in a given book. How many of you can tell me how many letters are written in the, in the book of Isaiah? They could have. How many of you can tell me how many words were in the book of Deuteronomy? They could have. And so people looked at them and they were, if you will, they were like considered like the Billy Grahams of the day. The Franklin Grahams of the day. The Pastor Terry's of the day. But with that knowledge, there is this lack of insight. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a daring statement that Jesus made. Uh, By this statement, Jesus categorizes the scribes and the Pharisees as those who are not currently in the kingdom at all. When Jesus said that, the crowd would have uh, gasped. (gasps) What did he just say? If they can't get in, if Terry can't get in, then what chance do I have? He's a keeper of the law. But Jesus said that because of the way they taught, the things that they taught. Their righteousness was based on rules that were an improper uh, description of what God's law was trying to say. And so, Paul, referring to those who are truly of God's kingdom, he says a few things. Listen to what he said in Romans chapter 2. He said, a Jew is one... a Jew." I'm sorry, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not of the letter. In Philippians 3.3, Paul said this, We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. By the way, scribes, Pharisees, full confidence, full confidence in their flesh because they had kept the law. But Paul says, those who have no confidence in the flesh but rejoice in Christ Jesus, those are the ones who are truly circumcised. So another way that Jesus fulfilled was through his teachings. The way he lived, the way he taught, the words that he said. You know, he was often questioned and they tried to trap him. They said, uh, Jesus, teacher, what is the great commandment? What is the greatest commandment of all the law? And Jesus would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love uh, your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus brought teachings to the people of that day. He opened their hearts. He opened their eyes to these teachings. And he brought the word of God alive in a way that they had never seen before. He did it by the way he lived, as we said. And he did it by his proper interpretation of God's law. And so you you look at the rest of Matthew chapter 5. And he's continuously like 
correcting the teachings of the, of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. Six times he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And in those words, he's saying, look, this is what you're being taught by these religious leaders. But let me tell you what God truly meant from the law. And so I just wanted to look at a few very briefly, okay? In reference to murder, look at verses 21 and 22. Look at how Jesus teaches about the, the commandment of murder. In verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And everybody thinks, okay, I'm good there. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And so, like Moses, everyone, Jesus condemns murder, right? And Pharisees and the scribes, they understood this commandment in the, like, the narrowest sense possible. And so they prided themselves and they said, hey, well, I've never murdered anyone. I'll put that under my belt. I got that one, right? And Jesus says, but wait a minute. If you even have anger towards somebody, then you are guilty and you deserve judgment for that. And so Jesus says that the commandment extends to emotional murder or resentment or anger against someone. And so Jesus is saying, look, that law that said you shouldn't murder was to teach you that even anger and resentment to someone is wrong. They had never thought of it that way. Concerning adultery, look at verses 27 and 28. Because, again, the Pharisees said, well, I've never committed adultery. Look at what Jesus said in verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then all the men take a gulp. Mm. Do you mean to tell me that I'm guilty of adultery? Jesus says, if you've even looked at someone and lusted after them, you are guilty and so, again, scribes, Pharisees, prided themselves, hey, I've never gone to bed with another woman. Jesus said, well, but have you looked at a woman and lusted? Quiet, everybody. He says, then you are guilty. And so he brought life to the true meaning of the commandments. Just a couple more. Um, if you look at divorce in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, it has been said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And so while the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees were arguing over whether divorce could be allowed in certain situations, Jesus was much more concerned to defend the creation ordinance of marriage. And he would say, look, while you are arguing about whether or not the law allows this or that person to get a divorce, let me remind you that God instituted marriage. And what God has put together, let no man separate. Uh, concerning oaths, Jesus would say, look, 
don't even make oaths because the scribes and the Pharisees would make oaths on the earth or on Jerusalem or Israel. And they would never make an oath on God's name. And if they didn't keep their oath, they would say, well, I didn't dishonor God because I didn't make an oath by God's name. And Jesus would say, look, don't even make an oath. Don't even make a vow. It's better not to make a vow. Just let your yes be yes. Let your, your character speak louder than your words. Uh, about revenge, look at verses 38 through 39. Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus would, in essence, say, don't take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Don't do it. There is a, uh, an Irish boxer who became a pastor. He got saved. He became an evangelist, became a pastor. And he was setting up his tent when a couple of thugs walked up to him. They began to mock him, but the boxer pastor continued his work. And one of the thugs took issue and finally took a swing that glanced off the side of the ex-boxer's face. He shook it off and he stuck out his jaw, whereupon the thug hit him on the other side. At that, the preacher took off his coat. He rolled up his sleeves and he announced, The Lord commanded me no further instructions. And with one swing, knocked him out. He took that a little too literal, didn't he? (laughs) We shouldn't take revenge. There's always a deeper meaning. There's a root to the reason God gave all of those commandments to us. Jesus came to show us those meanings. He brought light. He brought life to God's word in the Old Testament. So... Jesus basically said, my followers must demonstrate a higher moral standard than the average unbeliever, for crying out loud, right? Because even unbelievers sometimes behave better than believers. And Jesus said, that shouldn't be so. Just because you haven't murdered somebody doesn't mean you're better than everyone else. Just because you haven't gone through the physical act of adultery doesn't mean you're not guilty. And so the scribes, They looked for strict legal correctness, but Jesus looked for love. They were stressed, or they stressed keeping the law from the standpoint of the law keeper, but Jesus looked at the heart. So consider, the moral law of God has not changed. We do not obey an external law because of fear, but we obey an internal law and we live We live it because of love. Sin is still sin. God still punishes sin. In fact, Wiersbe says, in fact, we in this present age are more responsible because we have been taught and given more. And the righteousness that Jesus demands is not external. It is internal. One last thing. One last thing on Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. He gave us a new covenant listen to what paul said in romans 3 romans 320 okay listen to what he says about the covenant and what he says the old testament covenant the law 
and what he says about the new covenant that Jesus brought. I'm reading from Romans 3.20. Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what he says about the Old Testament. Now, in verse 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God uh, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And so think about this. The law was given so that we could become conscious of our sin. It was our tutor. It was given to show us, hey, you've, you've sinned, you've displeased God. And that sin separates you from God. There's a break in your relationship between you and God because of that sin. And there were all these sins that would show us that. And so under the Old Testament law, righteousness came by man behaving. But under the gospel, righteousness comes by believing. The law reveals the righteousness of God because the law is holy and just and it's good. But beginning all the way at Genesis 3.15 and all throughout the Old Testament, witness is given to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, the Old Testament sacrifices, the prophecies, the types, the scriptures like Isaiah 53, they all bore witness to this truth. The law could witness to God's righteousness, but it could not provide it for sinful man. Only Jesus Christ could do that. And so, with the old covenant, we couldn't attain righteousness. With a new covenant, we can. And really, no one is... No one can have an excuse because in the new covenant, we are required to believe in what Jesus did and surrender our lives to him. Isn't that so freeing? The law of the Old Testament as taught especially by the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus fulfilled all that. He corrected them first of all and then he fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament law and now he did it He died on the cross for your sins and my sins. And he did so so that he could say, look, if you would just believe in what I've done for you, that I died and paid the price for your sins, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, that was just a picture of the sacrifice that I was going to give. The last sacrifice once for all for your sins. And if you would just place your trust in me, then that is how you attain righteousness in the New Testament. You know, people miss the point of God's word. They miss Jesus. They miss his saving grace, his outstretched arm to those in need. Instead of focusing on Jesus, we focus on like church legalities, if you you will, like where church should be. I've had people come and argue with me that church should be held at a home. And instead of preaching Christ, that's all they preach. And I'm like, dude, you're missing the message. Why don't you tell people about Christ? But no, it's wrong to meet at a church. Some people will say, well, this church is too fancy. The lights you have on stage, that's, that's wrong. Man, worship God. Right? Some people might complain and, and look at our gin and say, gosh, that's an ugly building. <laughs> I'm guilty of that. 
But God would say, look, go inside that building and worship me. Right? Uh, we look at things like, you know, some churches discuss the things that people or Christians should wear or not wear or do or not do. There are churches that teach you shouldn't wear jewelry, you shouldn't wear makeup, that it's wrong to dance. Sure, styles of dancing could be wrong, right? But it's not wrong to dance. It's not wrong to wear jewelry. It's not wrong to wear makeup. It's the motive with which you do that, right? Uh, foods and holidays. You know, we have a harvest, not a harvest, uh, I guess that's what we call it, right? A, a harvest festival? What do we call it here? Is that right? That's what we call it. People get upset, and they say, how dare you do something on, on October 31st? Well, you know what we do on that day? We preach Jesus Christ, and we give people uh, an opportunity to come to the church, to get preached to, and I believe people get saved. People are prayed for. And so the whole point is look to Jesus. Paul said everything you do, do it what? To the glory of God. And so I want to end with this question. Is the way you live your life, the things that you do, the things that you say, check this out. Are the emotions or the things that you feel glorifying God? Do they bring glory to God? Does it show God's heart? Does it teach God's word? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word we thank you that you are the most amazing teacher because you are the author. Lord, we long to understand your word deeper so that we could know you better. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to live a perfect life because we can't. We thank you that you lived the perfect life. Lord, we thank you that you came and you fulfilled all of the requirements of the Old Testament law. And now in this church age that we live in, Lord, we can become righteous in your eyes by placing our faith in you Lord, there is no other God. You are the only God. And of all the made-up religions, of all the deceitful religions made up by the devil, the enemy, you're the only one that says, I have done for you what you couldn't do so that you wouldn't have to spend eternity apart from me. Lord, we thank you so much for that. With that said, with every eye closed, if, every, if anyone is here and they don't know whether or not they are a part of the kingdom of God, if you don't know this morning that if you were to die this instant, you would go to heaven, then you need to cry out to God. You need to give him your life. You need to tell him that you believe in him. Because that is where your new life starts. God knows your heart. He knows your motive. He knows what you struggle with. He knows all of our struggles. 
And when you consider how much deeper he took the, the commandments, even just the Ten Commandments, we are full of sin. But Jesus died for those sins. And so would you pray this prayer this morning? Would you tell him, would you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for all of my sins. I have sinned in every way, if not physically, in my heart, and you know every single one of them. But I believe and trust in you that you died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. And I surrender the rest of my life to you. Help me to live for you. Help me to do things that glorify you. I need you 110%. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.